times when you were growing up when you had a bad dream or maybe a loud noise woke you up in the middle of the night and you woke up crying? Who heard your cries and came and ran to help you and comfort you? You're right, your mommy and your daddy. <laughs> they were alert, they heard your cry, they came to you. And remember how that made everything all better and you were able to go back to sleep? That's kind of like what King David does here in this psalm. But he calls out to God and God hears him and answers him. Adults and young people, can you remember a time in your lives when something happened that took you by surprise, knocked the wind completely out of your sails, felt like a punch to the gut, left you feeling helpless and not knowing what or how to pray? Maybe it was an unexpected turn in a relationship, a job conflict, or a job loss. Maybe someone you know was in a serious car accident, or you or someone you love received a distressing medical diagnosis. Or maybe you came under verbal abuse or physical attack. I can remember an instance in my life when our youngest grandson, Drayden, was born in North Dakota. He was born with his intestine twisted and a part of it had died. And so as soon as he was born, he was whisked away to the NICU where they operated on him and cut out that section. I think we have a little ringing. Here we go. Cut out that section of his colon. And he remained in the NICU for eight weeks. And Carol went to visit and to help with the other grandchildren. But I was stuck here in Arizona because I had to be at work. And so I remember um, in between times of getting updates from Carol, just the not knowing how to pray or in crying out to God and ask in anguish and in groanings for the life of my little grandson. So reading this psalm made me think that this is the type of situation that David was in when he penned this psalm, crying out in distress in the midst of extreme anguish and the turmoil that was going on in his life. As we consider Psalm 5 this morning and look at how and to whom Dave, King David cried out in his time of distress, I want us to consider what do we do? Do we cry out to men for help? Or silently remain helplessly in turmoil? Or will we follow the example of King David and cry out to our faithful God who hears and acts? So let's begin looking at the text with verses 1 through 3, where we see the psalmist's cry. In verses 1 and 2, we read, Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. So as we begin this psalm, we encounter David in what seems to be a continual or at least oft-repeated state. He's in deep distress. Whether some commentators believe the distress in this psalm is a continuation of that arising from the rebellion of his son Absalom that we've seen as we looked at in prior psalms, we're not told. But whatever the case, the distress is real for David, and he cries out. And where does he turn for relief in his distress? We see the answer to this in the very first words out of his mouth. He turns to no one or nothing else but to the only real means of source of help in time of distress. That is, in prayer, to the almighty, sovereign, 
all caps, Yahweh, God, his covenant God. David begins with a trio of parallel phrase imperatives, calling on Yahweh to give attention to three things. First, he calls Yahweh to give ear to, to listen, to hear his words, the intelligible words uttered from his lips. Secondly, he calls on Yahweh to consider or to perceive his groaning. The Hebrew verb used here for groaning can also denote sighing or murmuring or even meditating, and it's related to the word that we saw back in Psalm 1, verse 2, where the blessed man was said to meditate on the Torah or the law of God. David is asking his God to perceive what is not clearly spoken, but deep groanings, sighs, and murmurs, murmurings hidden within his heart. This is what I was alluding to in an introduction in those situations where we can't find the words and only unintelligible groanings and sighs come out. C.H. Spurgeon commented on this type of prayer when he said, quote, here is comfort for the distressed but praying soul. When our hearts are broken and we bow in prayer, we are often only able to employ the language of sighs and tears. Still, our groaning has made all the harps of heaven thrill with music. Our God not only hears prayer, but also loves to hear it. But wherever there is a heart enlarged with sorrow, or a lip quivering with agony, or a deep groan or a penitential sigh, the heart of Jehovah is open. He marks it down in the registry of his memory. He puts our prayers like rose leaves between the pages of his book of remembrance. And when at last the volume is open, there will be a precious fragrance springing from it." End quote. So take courage, distressed brother or sister of God. Our God's ear is open even to your groanings and your sighings. In the third imperative, David calls on Yahweh to give attention to or to listen or to hear his cry for help. The word has the sense of a loud cry for help. And at the end of verse 2, to whom do we see David addressing these imperatives? To my king and my God. This is the first time in the book of Psalms where God is referred to as king. And the repetition of the modifier, my king, my God, expresses that David's king and God are his covenant king and God. He pleads for his king and his God. Here the word is Elohim, the mighty one both titles of power and authority to right the injustices that he is facing. He acknowledges that even though he himself is a king, little k, that he is a man under authority to the king, big k. And by this assertion, David is reminding his king and God that he is not in league with those nations and kings and rulers that we saw in Psalm 2 verses 1 through 3 that are plotting against Yahweh and his anointed and thus not being a part of that group, Yahweh should listen to, what, to him when he prays. Moving on to verse 3, we read, O Yahweh, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. The first thing we notice in this verse is that David is again addressing his covenant God, Yahweh, calling on him to hear his voice of prayer. We're familiar with the word hear, from Deuteronomy 6.4, the Jewish Shema. It's a call on God not only to hear the one who cries out, but in hearing to act. 
And the second thing we noticed is that the phrase in the morning is repeated, was repeated within the same verse. And from previous sermons and Sunday school lessons, we remember that this type of repetition is a way of emphasizing. So here by repeating in the morning, the psalmist David is emphasizing that coming to God is to be made a priority of the day and should be done early. It also indicates that prayer is a discipline to be practiced daily. And additionally, coming to Yahweh in prayer regularly and consistently is an act of faith. And at the end of, the, of this verse, what the ESV renders, I prepare a sacrifice, is literally translated, I prepare, I arrange, or I make preparations with no expressed object of what is being prepared. And based on the context, I agree with commentators who see the idea here is that David is preparing his words of prayer rather than preparing an animal sacrifice. And lastly, having prepared the words of his prayer, what does David do? He watches. Translations that give a better sense of his watching are the New American Standard, which says, eagerly watch, and the NIV and NET, which render it, wait expectantly. David makes his requests and waits expectantly for his covenant God to answer. This watching is what we find the prophets doing after they have made proclamations such as we read in Habakkuk 2.1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. How is it in our lives when we are in distress? Is the first morning impulse of the day to turn to and to humbly and expectantly pray to the covenant God to hear us? If it's not, may we strive to make it so. If it is our practice, may it become more so. And don't worry if all you can utter is a sigh or a groan. As we've seen, you're in good company with David, the psalmist, and C.H. Spurgeon. Your faithful covenant God will hear your utterances and act according to his perfect will. And don't be afraid to cry with a loud cry. Again, you would be in good company, for the Lord Jesus did just that while he was here on this earth, as we read in Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Did the Lord hear your voice in prayer to him this morning? Will he hear your voice tomorrow morning, every morning? May we learn from and emulate these examples in our lives and make it so. Moving on to verses 4 through 6, we see the psalmist's confession of God's character. As we will see, those described in these verses contrast starkly with what the psalmist described in the first three verses, just as we saw the sharp contrast between the righteous person and the wicked person when we looked at Psalm 1. In verses 1 through 3, we have been given a picture of the psalmist's preparations to enter the presence of God. Whereas in these three verses, we will see he gives us a catalog of the nature of those persons who, based on God's character, cannot enter God's presence. Beginning with verse 4, we read, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. In this verse, the psalmist begins to rehearse the character of his God. 
in contrast to the righteous man in Psalm 1 who is blessed of the Lord because he delights in the Lord and the Torah. Here the Lord does not delight in wickedness and in the wicked. God takes zero pleasure in wickedness. In fact, as we will see as we continue in the psalm, God positively hates the wicked. We see in this verse that, quote, evil may not dwell with the gods, the psalmist's God. The Hebrew word translated dwell here emphasizes a tentative or impermanent visitation or a sojourn. As one commentator aptly put it, quote, the psalmist's point is that God is so incompatible with evil that even the most temporary coexistence is utterly impossible. And we could say in modern vernacular that God and the wicked cannot coexist even for a nanosecond. By delineating the attitude and actions of his righteous God toward a catalog of those whose sins are characterized by wickedness, David continues to rehearse the character of his God in verses 5 and 6 where we read, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. Yahweh abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. The first category is the boastful. These are those who are characterized by being haughty, arrogant, filled with pride. They are those who are infatuated with themselves and praising themselves. Such will not stand before the eyes of the psalmist's righteous and holy God. This idea of not standing should cause a hyperlink in our minds back to the, the wicked described in Psalm 1, verse 5, who will not be able to stand before God's judgment. And before your eyes may bring to your mind Habakkuk 1.13, where the prophet is addressing Yahweh, and we read, You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. The only time the boastful and the arrogant will know the face of Yahweh will be on that terrible coming day of judgment. The next category are all evildoers. The psalmist says that God's holy and righteous character means that he hates all evildoers. What? The warm and fuzzy, all-loving God of the Bible hates evildoers? Isn't he the John 3.16 God who loves everybody, or at least hates the sin but loves the sinner? Is this a misprint or a textual error? No. We find this elsewhere in the Bible as well. Take, for example, Proverbs 6, where we have almost exactly the same catalog of evildoers as we have in our text today. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, we read, There are six things that Yahweh hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So our God does, in fact, hate evildoers, those whose way of life is unrepentantly evil. The next category of wicked is the liars. These are those who speak falsely, who slander, who prefer, pervert and deviate from the truth, those who are deceivers. The psalmist states that Yahweh destroys those who speak in this way. And the word used here for destroy is the same word used in Psalm 1.6 and 2.12 that we saw when speaking of the wicked perishing or being destroyed. 
And the word used for lies in this verse is the same word used in Psalm 4.2, speaking of David's enemies seeking lies against him. Thus we see the ties back to previous Psalms. The final category of the wicked named here is bloodthirsty and deceitful. These are those who either with their hands physically shed the blood of another, such as a murderer, or more likely in the context of the previous Psalms we've looked at, as well as this verse and the following verses in this Psalm dealing with lies of the sin and sins of the mouth, these would be those whose falsehood and deception result in the death of the weak or the innocent. The verse says that Yahweh abhors this type of person. This is a very strong word and can mean detest, loathe, despise, degrade, be repulsed by, and having hatred for. You get the idea, right? God emphatically does not like this type of person. If we step back and think about it, why would David confess Yahweh's character attributes back to him? Doesn't Yahweh know all these things about himself already? Of course he does. But by praying this as he does in these three verses, David accomplishes four things. First, he praises God by rehearsing his character. Second, he reassures himself that no matter what the circumstances might look like, his God is righteous, good, and in control. Thirdly, it provides an avenue for his own self-examination as he comes into the presence of his holy God. In the face of God's character and his actions toward evil, how does David measure up? It's a deterrent against acting in kind with the evildoers that are coming at him. And fourthly, it assures David that in the end, his enemies will not prevail against him. So we see in this confession in these verses is for his benefit. And I would encourage each of us to follow David's example and make this an exercise that we participate in regularly to, before our God to our benefit. Do we see any who belong to these categories of wicked around us in our world today? Absolutely. We see many who are boastful, arrogant, evildoers all around us. We may consider many in the news media or social media or politicians as those who twist the truth and deceive. When I think of bloodthirsty, I immediately think of the abortionists and the culture of death that is so pervasive in our society today. This shouldn't really surprise us because the Apostle Paul warns us of as much in 2 Timothy 3, where we read in verses 1 through 5, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. We are living in the times just described, are we not? As with David in the face of the attacks we may face from all evildoers such as these, we have need first to examine our own hearts, then call out to our God in confidence, confessing and trusting in His righteous character, pleading for Him to intervene in our nation and the world to cause righteousness, truth, justice, the sanctity of life, and the gospel to prevail 
May we do so daily and not grow weary. May the Lord Jesus be our perfect example in this as we read in Hebrews 12.3. Consider him, that is the Lord Jesus, who endured for, from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Moving on to verses 7 and 8, we see the psalmist's confidence. In these two verses, we learn much from David about how to, in confidence, properly enter the presence of Yahweh to worship him, and secondly, how to seek his guidance. Beginning with verse 7, we read, But I, your house, I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. The first element of David's confidence as he comes into the presence of Yahweh is indicated by the first two words, the contrasting phase, but, phrase, but I. But I, I'm not like the evildoers just enumerated in verses four through six, who can have no entrance into your presence. He realizes though that even though he is different from the evildoers, doesn't mean that he can just waltz into the presence of the holy God based on his own merit or worth or works. This leads to the second element of David's confidence, that is the abundance of Yahweh's steadfast or covenant love, which we know from past sermons from our brother, Pastor Nick. Only because of the gracious love of Yahweh can men enter into his presence. And the final element of David's confidence is that he does not attempt to come into Yahweh's presence pridefully or arrogantly, but humbly bowing down with holy reverence, fear, or awe. Remember, he's already said in verse 5 that the boastful, haughty, and arrogant will not enter his presence. So David comes humbly. Moving on to verse 8, we read, Lead me, O Yahweh, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. I appreciate one commentator's succinct comments on this verse when he stated, quote, We can, we should ask Yahweh to lead us because he is a God who takes no pleasure in, will not give an audience to, will not allow to stand, hates, will destroy, and abhors wickedness and all evil, we can be confident that he will lead us in righteousness, in the right way and along the right path. When we are faced with opposition and confronted by enemies, we can ask him to guide us around spiritual booby traps, theological quicksand, and personal landmines. We can ask him to keep us on a path that is straight, a path of integrity, honesty, and humility. And the path spoken of here is the blessed path of the righteous man that we saw when we looked at Psalm 1, verse 6. David is doing what the author of the book of Proverbs enjoins us to do in Proverbs 3, 6, where we read, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. May we follow David's example in rightly approaching our God in prayer and worship. And the next time we need guidance or have a decision to make and we don't know what to do, let us go to our gracious God and ask him for guidance to stay on the right path, his path for us. And better yet, not just when we don't know what to do, let us begin each day asking that he provide us with the guidance that we would need to make the decisions we face each day. This brings us to verses 9 and 10 where we see the psalmist's call for justice. In these two verses, we see why David calls for his enemies to be brought to justice and the sentencing he asks for. Beginning in verse 9, For there is no truth in their mouth, their inmost self is destruction, their throat is an open grave, 
they flatter with their tongue. This ties us back to verses four through six, especially verse six, and the psalmist gives us more details concerning the sins of the tongue of his enemies described there and the reason he's calling for them to be judged, to be condemned. He is undergoing malicious, slanderous attacks of false accusations, and their words are a danger to him and all who would seek to walk the path of righteousness. The message translation of this verse gives us some vivid imagery when it renders, every word they speak is a landmine. Their lungs breathe out poison gas. Their throats are gaping graves and their tongues are slick as mudslides. These seem like really wicked, despicable, and vile people, right? Well, the Apostle Paul has something that will shake us up in Romans 3, verses 9 through 18, where we read, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The apostle makes it clear that what? We were these same really wicked, despicable, and vile people apart from the saving grace of our God in Christ. How we should constantly be praising our God for his merciful saving grace and love towards us in his son and his atoning sacrifice on the cross. Amen? Amen. Amen. In verse 10 we read, make, their, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because the abundance of their transgressions cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. We see in this verse the justice or judgment that David asked that his God, here again the term is Elohim, the mighty one, bring upon these evildoers. It's as, as if we were in a courtroom. There's a hushed silence as David has just presented his case as a prosecuting attorney, pointing at the evildoers and enumerating their evil words and actions toward him. And then he drives home his case, as it were, by turning his gaze and motioning to the judge and exclaiming that they have rebelled against you, your honor, and I call for a verdict of guilty and a sentence that is commensurate with their sins. Can you imagine the gasps that would be uttered by those <laughs> witnessing this in the, in the courtroom? And David is not seeking personal vengeance here in response to the attacks of the evildoers on himself. He has called for justice and motivated by the dishonor brought on his God by, these rebell by their rebellious actions. He asks the three, three things of the righteous judge. One, that the evildoers bear their guilt and be de declared guilty and sentenced accordingly. Two, that they fall by their own counsels. He asks that the judge give them over to be ensnared by their own devious schemes or counsels, and that rather than being ensnared, by, rather than ensnaring their intended victims, they become their own victims. This should also remind us of the counsel of the wicked in Psalm 1-1, or those who plot or take counsel in vain against Yahweh and his anointed, 
in Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. And thirdly, David asks that the evildoers be cast out. The word here has a sense of being banished, thrust out by force. It's the same word used in Jeremiah 8.3 and Jeremiah 24.9 in reference to the rebellious nation of Israel being exiled, forced out of the promised land. He's asking the guilty rebels be removed from the covenant community. Is it right for David and or us to pray prayers such as this against evildoers, against the wicked? Let us consider how Jesus taught his disciples to pray by giving the Lord's Prayer as an example. We read his words in Matthew 6.10, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. He is invoking divine judgment on all other kingdoms and those who participate in them in rebelling against the one true God. He's causing, calling for judgment on evildoers. Pastor James Adams, who many of us know, um, comments, quote, When we pray as Jesus taught us, we cry out to God for his blessings upon his church and for his curses upon the kingdom of the evil one. So yes, there are times when it is appropriate for us to pray imprecations against evildoers, such as when our God is being dishonored by them or his church is being dishonored or harmed by them. However, our main prayer for evildoers who attack us and our God should be for their salvation. And lastly, imprecations should never be used as a personal vendetta against another individual. This brings us to the final two verses where we see the psalmist's covenant God. In these two verses, we see the psalmist call on the righteous to rejoice and to exult in their covenant, Yahweh, who is their protector. Looking at verse 11, we read, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. In contrast to the evildoers whom he has just asked the judge to judge guilty and to cast out, David now calls on the righteous to come to and take refuge in this very same God. Take refuge has the idea of fleeing to a mighty fortress for security in time of trouble. And he calls them to rejoice in doing so. Is he rejoicing or gloating that here the evildoers aren't going to get what's due to them? They're just dues? No. He has just made his request for judgment to his God, and he leaves the outcome into his hands to do as he wills. Lord Jesus is our perfect example of this, as we read in 1 Peter 2, verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So having left the judgment of the evildoers in God's hands, David moves on from his own personal situation to calling those who are the righteous as he is to take refuge in their God from the evildoers and to rejoice that they have access to that refuge. This echoes back to Psalm 2 verse 12 where the righteous take refuge in Yahweh's anointed. In the phrase, let them ever sing for joy, sing for joy has a sense of a loud, call out loudly, to shout or cry for joy. So I see the stark contrast between David's cry of distress in verse 2 and his shout or cry of confident joy to God as protector in this verse. 
He asks his God to spread his protection over, to cover, to overshadow them, perhaps bringing to mind the picture we find in Psalm 91, where we read in verses 1 and 4, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Those who love Yahweh's name can exult in him, knowing that his name encompasses his power, his character, his protection, his love, his whole being, which is employed for the good of the righteous. And of course, we know that the only ones who can know his name and be counted righteous and so enjoy these blessings are those who have been made righteous in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the righteous one, whom we read of in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil, the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I like the way one commentator put it when he said, quote, One who finds refuge in God has a lifelong source of jubilation. One who finds refuge in God has a lifelong source of jubilation. So let us exult and be jubilant in our God. This brings us to the final verse, verse 12, where we read, For you bless the righteous, O Yahweh, you cover him with favor as with a shield. The psalmist began by addressing his covenant God, Yahweh, in verse 1 of the psalm, and he ends by doing the same in verse 12. In contrast to the decry of distress in verse 1, we find here a sense of confidence and hope that have arisen by his contemplating the righteous character of his God. He rejoices and he exults in the fact that this covenant God blesses the righteous. Reading blessing here should take us back to multiple places in previous psalms we've considered, reminding us of the ironic blessing in Numbers 6, 24 through 26, where Yahweh gave to Moses to speak to the people of Israel through the priest Aaron. As the modern-day people of God, we who are in Christ Jesus are the recipients of these gracious blessings. We read at the end of the verse, God covers the righteous with the favor of his blessing as with a shield. The word for shield here, used here is a large body shield as opposed to the small defensive handheld shield that we saw in Psalm verse 3.3. And the word for cover here has a sense of to encircle or to surround. It's as if Yahweh stretches the large shield to encircle the righteous, providing 360 degree protection. This brought to my mind Iron Man's, Iron Man's protective armor surrounding him. But Tony Stark's armor is nothing in comparison, since there is no weapon that can ultimately pierce Yahweh's shield of protection. So in conclusion, we've seen in today's psalm that the psalmist King David, even though being God's anointed king and having been given great promises, begins this psalm as he did the previous two psalms, under attack by enemies, by evildoers, and crying out in distress. In our psalm today, the attacks are from the boastful, from liars, from bloodthirsty deceivers who are not only attacking David, but rebelling against Yahweh. But as with the previous two psalms, by the end of the psalm, David is rejoicing and exulting with confidence in his covenant God and the blessed protection he will provide to the righteous. What has brought about this complete 180-degree change in his countenance? 
It's come from recounting, rehearsing, and demeditating on the character of his God in prayer. In doing so, he is now able to confidently exult in his God and the protection that he will encircle him with. By following David's example, we too can experience the same kind of confidence and joy in the midst of attacks from evildoers that we may face in our lives today. To the unbeliever who is here this morning, the one who is not in Christ, that is, who has not confessed and repented of their sins before a holy God and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from those sins, do you consider yourself an evildoer? As we've seen today, the Bible says that God considers you an evildoer, and we've also seen that God hates evildoers. That being the case, who can you cry out to when you are in distress or under attack? There's no one who hears your cry who is able to help you apart from God, and as we've seen today, he will not hear you if you remain in your sin. You are of those spoken of in Psalm 18:41, where we read, they cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to Yahweh, but he did not answer them. He will only hear and come to your rescue if your cry to, his, if your cry to him is, O oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I urge you in the strongest terms to call out to your God for mercy today. Repent of and turn from that sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For if you do not do so, your destiny on the judgment day will be what we read of in Matthew 13, 41 and 42. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil, that is, all evildoers. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, speaking here of the eternal torment of hell. May it not be so. Turn to the Lord Jesus today. From brothers and sisters in Christ, my hope is that you and I learn from David's example in this psalm and do as he did when we find ourselves in similar circumstances. We may not have bloodthirsty evildoers physically attacking us, but there will likely be times when the boastful and liars will try to harm us. And most certainly the evil one, who we know from Scripture is the father of lies and has been lying from the beginning, will accost us with his lies. When we find ourselves in distress during these times of attack, maybe one, call out to our God to rehearse and meditate on his holy character. And then three, be able to in confidence rejoice knowing that he hears our cries, that he surrounds us with his protection. The attacks in his good providence may continue, but they cannot do any spiritual harm to us. We read in Romans 8:31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. He hears, he is good and just, he will protect, go and rejoice in him. Amen, please pray with me.